The podcast of this local government meeting is brought to you by Michigan Radio. For more coverage of local government meetings and to find out how you can support this service, go to michiganradio.org. I neglected to send it to everyone, but it is, of course, always on Legisner. Um, But let me just get that open for you. All right. All right, so you should be able to see that now. This is the minutes, I'll just scroll up, April 21st, and here you go. Um, Sorry, do we want to approve the agenda and then do public commentary first before we approve the um, minutes from last time. I'm sorry. Did I did no. I move ahead? <laughs> okay. Yes. But it's I'm all right. Sorry. So we were on the agenda first. I thought I was confused that I had the right one open at first. So let me switch back over to the agenda. All right. Thought I was in the right place, but no worries. Okay. So this is the agenda for this current meeting. And I believe there was a raised hand that was talking about that. So we will get to your comment momentarily. So yes, we are at item C, approval of the agenda. Which I am showing you right now. And I can scroll through briefly. So I know we've got a lot on this agenda. Did you want to also talk about the um, things that we we put on the list from last time, which was the producer only uh, guidelines and the um, transfer of seniority? Yep, it's here in Roman numeral five. As you can see. Lisa, would you like me to move to approve the agenda? Sure, please go ahead. So, so moved. (laughs) Do I have a second? Uh, I second. The motion carries. So our next item, sorry, I'm having a fight with my laptop today, um, is first public commentary under item D. All right, and I did see someone that was, had their hand raised before, let's see if they would like to re-raise their hand. Let me go to my participant screen. Yes. So I need to stop sharing for a second so that I can enable them um, to be able to. Hello there, you may address the commission. I did give you opportunity to speak. So if you can unmute yourself. Hmm. Let's see. Okay. Hello, can, you hear, can you hear me? Now we can hear you. Yes. You can hear me. Okay. I didn't, it didn't tell me how to do it, but then it finally did. It's okay. okay. This is, We're all learning. This is, Ann, this is Ann Shepard. So Stephanie, you don't have to read my letter. 
Okay. okay. First, I'm, extre I'm extremely grateful to Stephanie Willette and the commission for granting me my annual status in 2019. It has made a huge difference in my quality of life. I haven't had to constantly move around the market to different areas like before or worry that I won't make it under the roof. I am here now to ask that we complete the other step of that solution and grant some crafts the right to earn two annual stalls. Several of us already take those two stalls each day. We just aren't allowed to own them, meaning we're constantly under threat of having to move around to different areas of the market. In 2021 and 22, I've been able to go in the same spot each week. It has been great. Throughout this year, I will have to move a little bit though because I don't own my second spot. And as the years go by, there will be a threat each year as vendors gain and move and jostle around their annual spots each July in the move up. I will potentially have to find a new place to attempt to settle into each year and after that move around during each year. I can't really be guaranteed my annual stall because I don't own the one next to it. I'll never be able to just earn my two spots permanently and breathe a sigh of relief normally done by years and years of jostling around during the July move-ups until you can finally maneuver into two spots that are next to each other in your chosen location. I've been a member of the market in good standing for 25 years since 1997. The market is in a position where we have several unassigned spots, so this would be a great time to do this as it wouldn't deprive new vendors who are eager to get their spots. I've been coming 25 years and I'm a new kid among the crafters. Crafts have been at the market for over 50 years. Making this adjustment wouldn't mean that there are any more crafts at the market. I already take two spots every single time I come to market and I have for 25 years. Hopefully we've seen that giving me my annual status in 2019 didn't result in the market being overrun by crafts or in fact change anything and neither will this. It will not change how many stalls are taken by crafts on any market day ever. Those of us who take two stalls already take two stalls every day. We can keep a limit on new vendors accepted to the market. We already do that. That's the only fair way to limit the number of craft vendors. Please don't use this as an excuse to treat long-time, rule-abiding, good community members unfairly. Making an adjustment will not change the makeup or percentage of crafts at the market each day. Crafts already take two spots each day. Keeping artists as a separate category who are treated differently and unfairly, even though we follow the same rules and pay the same fees, is toxic. I would like to eliminate the separate category. I would like the commission and manager to encourage camaraderie between all vendors by doing this. We're all in it together and it's the mix that makes it. There's a reason our market is a top market. It's all of us. Just to be clear, I would like the separation of crafts to be eliminated, but my real concern at this time is for the few of us who take two stalls each day to be able to earn our two annual stalls like every other vendor. Thank you very much. Thanks, Anne, for that letter. And Stephanie, would you mind forwarding it on to us um, when you get a chance? Yep. That would be certainly. Great. I I made I made a couple changes. Can I resend it and have you forward yep. the yep. change yeah, one? Okay, thank you. Perfect. Thanks, Thanks, Anne. Thank you. Is there any other members of the public that would like to uh, provide public comment at this time on agenda items? 
All right. Well, I have something. I have another letter submitted um, by a vendor uh, from Debbie Marks. Let me pull that up. Um, this was also forwarded from Anne. So thanks, Anne, for providing this as well. Um, all right. Let me just pull it up and I will read it to you. Um, my name is Debbie Marks. I have been a vendor at the farmer's market for 31 years. I come all year round. My attendance rating is 90%. I would like to see the rules of the market match what we do every week as annual artists. I would like the paperwork to match what we do in reality as annual artists every market day. A few of us pay for and take two stalls, but we are not allowed two permanent stalls. We would like to have two permanent stalls that we can pick next to each other and stop being discriminated against in this way. This would allow us few vendors to know where our permanent stalls are each market day. I realize the rules call for 8% artists. I don't think the world would end if that percentage went up a little. There are four of us who would like to do it. This would only be a 3% change. The difference it would make is huge for us few. It would allow an easier stall assignment process for everyone because I it would eliminate us having to be moved around each week during daily stall assignments. This would not change the amount of stalls we take because we already take them and pay for them. Thank you for trying to understand this difficult and complicated problem. Please address this unfair situation. Thank you, Debbie Mark. Are there any um, other attendees that would like to speak right now? There will be another public comment opportunity um, later on. All right, I'm not seeing anyone. Um, so we can move on to the next agenda item, which is the approval of the minutes from the last meeting. So let me get those put back up um, so that we can take a look together. All right. I'll just slowly scroll down so people can read. And I also did email this to you all recently. Maybe I'll just keep it on this part for a little bit. There's not much um, after this. <clears throat> and that's the end. All right, do I have a motion to approve the minutes or are there any changes that anybody would like added? Motion to approve. Do I have a second? Second. All right, so the motion carries, so the minutes are approved. 
<laughs> Lisa. Yep. This is a technicality. Okay. But I'm going to use my little bit of expertise here. Yes, please. <laughs> I think we're supposed to vote before a okay. carries. I don't. Right. Not that I think that that would have caused any problem on either of the last two two times about the minutes and the agenda. But okay. just, just to note, you know, motion second, then vote. Okay. All right. Well, let's do it right this time and say, uh, let's have a vote on the minutes. So everybody say aye or raise their hand. Aye. Aye. Great. So now the motion carries. <laughs> Thank you. I told All learning you, process. Well, and I told you this is the part I was not going to be stellar on. It's all right. You're new to the role. <laughs> I even looked up the rules. Um, <laughs> I was like, it's not telling me that, that, that part. All right. So um, the minutes are approved um, from the previous meeting. So we now move on to F, which is presentations. And it looks like we have a presentation from the we Office do. of Sustainability. We have a very special guest with us um, from, excuse me, Office of Sustainability and, and Innovation, Julie Roth. Uh, and she will be talking about the sustainable energy utility um, that is in the works. Julie, would you like, uh, I can stop sharing and then you can share your screen um, if you're that ready. That would be great, yes. All right, so you should be able to do it. Let's see. Let me just make sure. Oh, sorry, one second. Actually, it's telling me you may have to make me a co-host or something like that. Yes, I will do that right now. All right. Well, I've made you a co-host. Are you able to share? There we go. Good. All right. Whoops. Try that again. And okay, here we are. So um, I'm curious, I can see most of you, I think, how many of you have heard about or are at all familiar with the sustainable energy utility on the commission? Yeah, ish, maybe. Okay, all right, good to know. So thank you for having me. Um, just to, to frame this a little bit, uh, the office has been circling around and speaking to all of our boards and commissions, as well as community groups and the public about the SEU, uh, largely because in the, in the uh, case of um, our commissions, you are all leaders in our community and um, never know sort of when questions may pop up or um, uh, folks may look to you for um, information. So we wanted to make sure that you were informed as well as anybody about what's happening with the sustainable energy utility because it's a big deal and it will affect um, our whole community. So that said, thank you for having me and for the chance to present. In our time together, I'm going to prevent, pre provide excuse me, a brief, brief overview of what an SCU is, how it could operate in Ann Arbor and our next steps. So as background, Ann Arbor has set an ambitious goal of achieving zero climate pollution by the year 2030. To understand how to achieve that goal, we need to understand where our climate pollution comes from. So locally, 
40% of our community-wide pollution, which is known as greenhouse gas emissions, come from building electricity use. And nearly two-thirds come from building electricity use plus natural gas used to heat and cool, heat, basically heat our buildings. So when you combine heating and electricity, we're talking about two-thirds of our community-wide emissions. Given this reality, we know that solutions to reducing local climate pollution necessitate finding pathways to A, clean our electricity grid, and B, support the transition away from methane um, natural gas for uh, heating in our buildings. So as we look for ways to improve the reliability and energy mix of our energy supply, it's important to understand the energy landscape in Michigan. Ann Arbor has what is known as a pre-foot act franchise, which basically means that DTE has the right in perpetuity to provide power to the city. So we can't go and uh, renegotiate that franchise ever. However, um, the Foot Act franchises are not exclusive, and the Michigan State Constitution does protect the rights of cities and villages to create their own municipal utility. This can be done in one of two ways, either via a taking, which is a legal term meaning condemnation and buyout of an incumbent utility and all of their infrastructure, or by the creation of a supplemental utility. To date, every community that has started their own municipal electrical utility within Michigan, the last one being Zeeland in 1902, did so by starting from scratch when service was not yet widespread. And you can imagine why. Standing up a full set of poles and wires to directly compete with the incumbent utility is an expensive and inefficient way of delivering electricity as is buying out their infrastructure through condemnation, which means you also acquire infrastructure that is often in poor condition. And then you have to, um, after spending all the money in buying it out, um, try to upgrade and modernize it. So what if we created a complementary community owned energy utility that provides electricity from local solar and battery storage systems installed on our homes and our businesses in our community? What if that community owned utility provided 100% clean, reliable, locally built and affordable electricity that's right here in our community? So focusing on generation here, as opposed to long distance transmission from far away. This utility would give residents a choice for where they procure their energy, a choice we don't have today. And this parallel utility would not duplicate the traditional grid with all of its vulnerabilities, but focus on generating clean, reliable, and affordable power right now. So that is what the city of Ann Arbor is looking to do via the creation of a sustainable energy utility. As envisioned, an SEU would focus first on generation of local clean energy, solar, energy that would feed directly into our homes, businesses, places of worship, and community centers. This clean energy would be paired with storage to help improve reliability and offered in conjunction with deep energy waste reduction programs to help our residents lower their energy costs and usage, all while improving comfort. The concept of an SCU is grounded in choice, 
providing Ann Arborites another way to procure a large portion of their energy, one that's coming from clean, local, reliable, and resilient sources. So the SEU would enable a lot more people to get the benefit of solar because it would directly pay for the installation on residential and business roofs, carports, ground mount systems. Residents would not own the solar system, the public or the SEU would own it. And then residents would subscribe to purchase their energy at a rate that is based on costs and SEU operational needs from the system on their or their neighbor's roofs. If all the residents' power needs are met, the excess generation from the solar system on their property flows into a battery system. This means that residents could still have power if the big traditional grid goes down. This is already possible today. Additionally, the SEU would not be limited by our current utility restrictions that constrain solar system sizes and the amount of solar allowed on the grid like the 1% cap that we're experiencing. Instead, the SEU would seek to maximize solar installations, leveraging all viable sunny roof space. Over time, individual solar systems would be connected through a series of microgrids, not DTE's big grid. The SEU could also offer a series of robust energy waste reduction programs, helping people lower energy demand and improve comfort. These services will be available to anyone that participates in the SEU, kind of like current energy waste reduction offerings are available through our incumbent utility. However, we could offer a slew of additional opt-in services that individuals can use to improve comfort, reduce their bills, and save energy. And these additional offerings can be financed through on-bill financing. This is very cool. Through on-bill financing, the SEU could pay the upfront cost of improvements like energy efficiency, electrification upgrades, weatherization, insulation, and then residents could pay back the costs through their utility bills. This allows the cost of the improvements to stay with the home as opposed to the resident and helps reduce the initial upfront costs needed to make the improvements. This makes these types of investments much more accessible to all residents, especially low-income individuals and renters, individuals historically omitted from most utility programs. The SEU will also provide support for beneficial electrification, ensuring we have safer, more comfortable, and cleaner homes and businesses, and eventually offer community solar programs so that individuals without viable solar access can still reap the benefits of clean energy. I know that was a lot to digest, but let me reiterate the core of an SEU. An SEU is a community-owned utility that focuses on generating local, clean, reliable energy fast. It's about leveraging existing technologies and practices like solar and storage to reduce our emissions quickly and improve reliability at the same time. It's about ensuring all Ann Arborites have access to solutions to improve comfort, reduce bills and reap the benefits of the clean energy economy. The SU, as I mentioned before, is about generating locally owned, reliable, clean, affordable energy. Because we are generating it locally, we don't need a large and vulnerable distribution network. This also means we don't have to worry about buying a lot of poles and wires or about extreme weather events knocking the SU supplied power out. Instead, we can focus on the generation of clean, local energy fast and reducing our climate pollution rapidly. So to close out, I want to share a few examples of how the SE would work. 
This isn't meant to be an all-inclusive list, but examples for how some of the concepts we've discussed could work in practice for individuals. So let's start with an example of a homeowner or business owner who has good solar potential on their roof, but doesn't have either the capital or ability to install solar on their roof. In this case, the individual would subscribe or enroll in the SEU as a supplemental utility to DTE. The SEU would work with that homeowner to conduct a needs assessment, identifying potential energy waste reduction and electrification opportunities. Selected opportunities would be implemented and the homeowner would have the option of financing those through the SEU's on-bill finance program. The SEU would strive to create a financing package where the electric bill is the same or even less than what is currently paid by stretching those um, payments over time and realizing a cost reduction um, because of the improvements. Once those are paid off, the resident reaps the full benefit of the improvements. Concurrent with the above, the SEU installs solar on their roof. The resident pays their energy bill as they always have, paying per kilowatt hour of usage generated from the on-site solar system. Any additional power they draw from DTE is paid directly to DTE. In this way, the resident has two bills, the SEU bill for the energy used from the on-site solar system and to DTE for any power drawn from the grid. So here's an example of a resident or business who is interested in um, energy waste reduction and beneficial electrification offers, but cannot install solar perhaps because of the beautiful trees that block solar access. In this case, the individual will receive an on-site assessment to identify energy waste reduction and beneficial electrification opportunities. They would choose which options to move forward with and have the option of financing them through the SEU's on-bill financing mechanism. The SEU could all, or excuse me, the individual could also register to join the micro or nano grid thereby sharing power with residents that have better solar potential. Once a critical number of neighbors in their immediate area sign up for the SEU. So this individual also would receive two energy bills, one for the portion of improvements financed on, uh, via on-bill financing through the SEU and one for the energy they pull from DTE. Third example is a resident, whoops, there we go. Yes, a third example is a resident who already has solar on their home or business. In this case, the resident could still take advantage of all the energy waste reduction and beneficial electrification support offered through the SEU and leverage the on-bill financing to pay for those improvements. This resident could also enroll for an SEU-owned battery if they don't currently have one. The resident could also enroll in the SEU and sell their excess power to the SEU instead of to DTE so that it can be distributed through local microgrids, which means basically shared with their neighbors. The rates for energy being sold back to the SEU still need to be determined, but the intent is to get as close to net metering, which means um, a significant improvement over what DTE reimburses. In this way, the resident is helping to provide power to the SEU and directly to their neighbors. Fourth example is for multifamily rental. In this case, the SEU would work closely with landlords or property owners and tenants to customize solutions that meet individual needs. 
Rental units are eligible for all SEU offerings, energy waste reduction, solar and storage, beneficial electrification, and eventually being tied to the local microgrid. The city's work on green leases paired with the on-bill financing tools offered through the SEU help ensure the cost of the improvements stay with the building and allow the cost of improvements to be spread over long periods of time, offering the opportunity for immediate health, safety, and comfort improvements at reasonable costs. Final example is of community solar. solar. In some cases, individuals will not have access to on-site renewable energy generation um, or neighbors with uh, that capacity. So in these cases, off-site solar will be installed in common areas like parking lots, school rooftops, appropriate park settings, et cetera, other shared places. Individuals can subscribe to take a portion of this energy to power their life and their business. In this way, anyone in the community can participate in the SEU, even if they don't own their own home or don't have viable solar potential on site. Individuals that subscribe to the community solar offering, offering pay per kilowatt hour um, for the usage directly to the SEU and pay DTE for any power they use from that utility. So these are just a few examples of how the SEU could work in different cases. So if you are interested in finding out more, we have a ton of information at a2gov.org slash a2seu. Um, if you are interested in seeing the city move forward with an SEU, please register your interest. There is a short five-question survey um, located, located in the second bullet point, but you can find it on the website. Um, because we are doing robust community engagement and we want to know how residents feel about this. Um, and if you have additional questions about this, you can send them to sustainability at a2gov.org. We are fielding loads of them and we will answer all of the questions that we get. Um, so thank you for letting me share a little bit about the SEU. And um, I am going to stop sharing and I am very well open to uh, any questions from anybody. Thank you, Julie. Does anyone have any questions for our presentation? Or our presenter, rather. Julie, thank you for that. Um, my name's Holly. I'm just curious, um, are there other cities that and in the US or elsewhere that you're modeling this after? Um, and can you give us some examples? What a great question. Yeah, that comes up a lot. So yes and no. There's no other city or anywhere that has done what we're proposing, but there are lots of places where all the different pieces are being successfully deployed. In other words, there are microgrids successfully running all over the place, small, um, grids of, of, you know, neighbors or maybe um, industry or hospitals or school systems that have microgridded with immediate buildings right around them with solar and storage that are kind of off-grid or supplementing the grid. Um, and there are examples of very robust and successful on-bill financing programs like in Holland, Michigan has a fantastic one where you can really stretch out your payments even over 20 years or something, the lifespan of, an, of equipment so that it becomes really affordable to do. Um, and But nobody has 
piled all these things into a utility where the where the solar is owned by the utility and the microgrids are owned, operated, and maintained by the utility and people are are built for the energy. That is new. That's something we're we've we're creating new. That's great question. That's really interesting. Um, just a follow-up question. Mm-hmm. What so are you trying to, what are you trying to do right now? <laughs> like, are you trying to uh, just get custom or um, community support? Are you trying to show that you have enough community support? Is like, are you looking at a millage? What, what are you, where are you at in the development process? And kind yeah. of what do you look like? How are you looking to actually mm-hmm. do this? I would imagine fundraising or some sort of fund development is part of it. Yeah. So great question. So we've been working on this for, I don't know, someone once said to me in the pandemic, time is soup, which is kind of how I feel. (laughs) Um, I think we've been working on this for about a year. Um, And we started out with stakeholder or with, yeah, basically a, a brain trust of sort of some of the top minds in energy and microgrids and the grids of the future and brought everyone together to find out whether this was technically feasible Mm -hmm. and also the legal community in Michigan to find out that this was legally feasible. And once we um, started those brain trust meetings that were really exciting, we found out that all of that was absolutely true. And so then we started to um, do a deeper dive uh, in on the website. You'll see a 40 page report that details kind of much more thoroughly what it is that the SEU would be and what it would do. So now city council, I think it was in January, maybe, mm, like I said, time, <laughs> um, they gave us the go ahead to, um, uh, pursue, three things. One was a robust, maybe it wasn't January, I don't know, a robust community education or community outreach campaign. This is complicated. This is hard to talk about to the public. We have to refine our message to make it clear so that it's understandable because it's it's complicated. The grid is complicated. Our energy is complicated. And we need people to understand what it is that we're proposing and see what they think. So we've been working on that for the past several months. And now we have launched that. And that's what this is a part of, me being here in this presentation and the survey that's online. And there's already been like 1,600 survey responses, something like that. So it's pretty robust. Mm-hmm. Um, and then... The second thing that we've been asked to do is a rate analysis so that we can determine uh, what the rate rates would be for SEU owned energy, which is somewhat difficult because it depends a lot on how big the rollout is and how many people will sign up, but that we're working on that. And then the final thing was to, oh, two more things to come up with a um, staffing and governance structure for an SEU. How would it be run? How would it be um, most likely it would be in a government division like the wastewater utility or the water utilities and uh, the staffing structure, what we would need. And then finally, draft an ordinance um, to move forward. As far as funding, which was your other question, there are lots of ways that uh, funding could be achieved. And that's another thing that we're looking really deeply at right now. The, the, the nice thing is that we could start it with a little bit of money and start small, or we could start it in a big, robust way if we had a lot of money. 
So there are um, potentials. We're working right now talking to the DOE about a very large loan <laughs> that um, may be too big because you have to start paying it back, but maybe right on board, depending on how big we're going to roll out. Um, we're talking about bonds. We're talking about um, other grant opportunities. And there's also the climate millage that is on the ballot for November that um, doesn't wouldn't staff our office. Our office is already staffed, but would um, could um, help support the um, upfront costs of, of doing this utility. Keeping in mind that the utility eventually will pay for itself, just like all utilities, right? It's just the upfront cost that needs to be um, needs to be generated. Got it. Does that answer all those questions? You did. Thank you, Julie. Yeah, sure. I love questions. I love this idea. So I'm very excited about it. And I'll talk about it all night long, which I'm sure you don't want. But please, if any more questions are great. Thanks, Julie. I just want to build on uh, Holly's saying thank you for being here and sharing this with us and, and also build on Holly's questions. And the Ann Arbor Farmers Market is part of the city parks. And so I'm wondering, you talked about a lot about residential choices. And um, I was wondering how you might be thinking about working with city parks and um, the Ann Arbor Farmers Market already has solar panels and yep. would love to see a needs assessment done at the market to think about the market needs and whether we could go um, carbon neutral with everything that happens at the market and maybe even dream about new things to add at the market, like some heat. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. um, That's great. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, so <clears throat> definitely our park systems and all sort of city owned everything are in play. So the, um, the idea would be that Right now, the amount the, the our office has calculated the amount of solar we would need in our community to power all of our current electricity needs. And it's somewhere around 400 meg 440 megawatts. We also calculated the available rooftop spaces. We didn't count ground mounts or carports or other things that don't exist yet but all the rooftop spaces that are sunny or sunny enough <laughs> to put solar on. And we come up with 400 kilowatts. So we can get really close. We're still going to need some offsite procurement because we can't get all the way there. But if we maximize our roof space, we can. And so I think the farmer's market is absolutely in play with all of the roof structures that are there. And probably it wouldn't be, I don't know. It could be starting there with um, SEU-owned on-site solar to maximize the roof because you have some, but you have lots of space that is not currently being utilized. And you could get SEU-owned solar there with battery storage. So you'd have resilience at the market as well. So if the power went out, you'd still have power. I don't know how often that happens there. but And then, um, and then at some point too, when... We start microgridding. I imagine, given the roof space on the market, although I'm not sure for there'd have to be a needs assessment, it's possible that we'd be able to sell some of that power back to neighboring structures in in like a, a microgrid once it becomes time. We look at our schools as great microgrid potential because 
the um, even the schools who are getting solar right now, which there are some, are limited in how much they can get by DTE. They say you can only put up enough solar to cover your current usage over an annual time period. But the roof spaces on the schools are are big and we could put a lot more up there. The other nice thing about schools is that they're not so operational in the summer when lots of energy is being produced. So great opportunity for microgridding on, on those big, giant, beautiful roof spaces. So hope that answers your question. Great, thank you. And um, I guess just keep us posted if there's anything we can do. I would love to have the farmer's market be uh, sort of star in the city of helping to reach uh, carbon neutral. And, and so that would be lovely. I love it. I would love that too. For now, the best thing that you can do is promote the website and the survey. The more input we get, we are reading every single comment that comes in and taking it to heart as we design this program and making sure that it's going to work for residents and what residents' biggest concerns are. So we really do want to hear from everybody on the survey. Great. Thank you. Any other questions? All righty. Julie, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. <laughs> thanks, Julie. All right, so let's move on to our next agenda item, which is G regular business. Yes, uh, so the first thing I have on that is facility and might as well quickly continue the solar theme. Um, so some of you may have remembered the sort of interactive solar meter um, that was at the market uh, and it's about the market going solar that was um, over by the Fifth Street area before the redesign. Um, that has been returned to the market. It was currently, or previously rather, at the Ann Arbor uh, Hands-On Museum. So now they have reinstalled it at the market so people can go and they can see, you know, the differences in terms of how much solar is being generated on a cloudy day, on a sunny day, uh, and other weather formats. Um, and if you're interested in checking that out, it's right attached now to the market office. So where we have the walk-up window for tokens, it's right um, adjacent to that. And they installed it, I want to say, um, you know, Monday or Tuesday of this week. So very topical uh, to be talking solar. And as Julie mentioned, yes, there is a proposal to increase the amount of solar that we do have um, at the market. Sorry, there's bugs flying at me. Um, and so that is something that is in the works. We're just uh, still waiting in terms of placement and all the other logistics for that is my solar tie-in uh, to facility updates. Um, other updates is when they were doing that project, um, they have been fixing odds and ends around the market. There's multiple gutters um, that had been sort of dented or crushed uh, in recent weeks by uh, trucks <laughs> that got a little too close to the roof. It's that time of season again. Um, so they did fix a bunch of those. There are some gutters that were leaking as a result of being detached. Um, I know there's one in the Donahue stall area that had been they had been asking about, and that is something they took a look at. Um, and they also did a full assessment of the market roof um, because there is one area in the market office that Stephanie, you may know about this, had sort of like there's an area where the wallpaper is sort of peeling um, above. So right above where the, the computer is up on the left-hand side. 
Um, so they were just up there on Wednesday, you know, checking out and making sure that there is nothing leaking. Um, but, you know, they've been very actively involved in doing um, updates and maintenance um, already in the last couple of weeks. So that's pretty much all that I have for facility. There's still some long-term projects that are in the works, like the power washing, like getting new signs um, to replace the ones that are a little bit weathered and a little bit cracked um, within the market itself. But Otherwise, they've been pretty good and pretty helpful um, in recent days, especially. Great, thank you. Um, and then the next item is events. Events, yes. So Flower Day is coming up May 29th, um, which is, of course, in partnership with the Sunday Artisan Market. Um, we have uh, much more interest than last year, not surprisingly, due to the pandemic. Um, we had sort of our priority deadline uh, over the weekend, but of course, we're not turning anyone away. If anyone wants to participate up until the last moment, um, we will bring in all sorts of folks. Um, we did line up an ice cream truck that was sort of a fun last minute addition. And it's actually like a food truck that serves ice cream. It's not like a neighborhood ice cream truck. Just to clarify, I know when you, there's a certain image when ice cream truck is said. Um, so yeah, they actually have nitro nitrogen <laughs> liquid nitrogen frozen ice creams and stuff like that so we'll have that we'll have um the kombucha truck with us from buchi mama we'll have all sorts of vendors with flowers and plants and other floral items um and this year too <clears throat> we were able to get um multiple carry town shops businesses on board to offer specials um you know floral themed gifts and things like that to coincide uh, with the event so that is 11 to 4 on May 29th, um, and it should be a great family-friendly event. We're also trying to bring back, um, you know, a kids' table to have some sort of programming for kids, as well as we will have live music. So we're looking forward to that. Great. Sounds like it's going to be a fun event. Thanks yes. for coordinating all those pieces. Yes. So Alex and I have been diligently working on that, posting flyers, getting the word out. So feel free to help us tonight. Stephanie, I don't know if you'll be joining us or not, but we would love to have you. You too, Jeff, if you're interested, but of course, no pressure. It's a busy weekend, Memorial Day weekend. It's tough. So, but we will have a lot of great vendors with us. Most of the vendors that usually participate and then some new folks too, as well as a couple um, that aren't regular vendors. All right, and that's all I have for Flower Day. Um, the second item I have for events is just that um, we sent out initial round of confirmations for our food truck rallies. Um, there, again, will be only four this year, July through October. We have a really good mix of folks um, already confirmed. Uh, it's a range at this minute from, from between, I think, seven trucks at the low end to about 11 or 12. Um, we are giving them until June um, to give us their information. So there still could be people that are adding. Um, there are a few that said that they were interested um, that may still add on. So looking forward to those as well. Um, and then in terms of other events, you know, nothing really new other than stuff that I had said the last time. We can breeze through that as well, unless people have questions or comments. Great, thank you. The next thing on the list is the 330 Detroit Street site development. 
Yes. Um, so Lisa and I went to the public hearing on Tuesday night. Um, I know Stephanie, you submitted a, a letter to the commission. Um, we were able to get a really big concession, um, which was that we, that the commission put an amendment on the approval of the process that we have to be actively involved. We meaning members of the commission, members of the market, members of Detroit Street Filling Station. Um, so, you know, that might not necessarily mean something specifically tangible, but it does mean we have a lot a stronger of a seat at the table as the market um, than we had going in. Um, obviously, the proposal was approved. It has a lot of elements to it that are well in line with the city's sustainability goals. Um, so, you know, it was approved, but the amendment was that we would be actively involved and anyone on the commission too that wants to participate in that can be included um, in the staging and construction phase of that project. Uh, and the, the goal there is to minimize the events. What's very interesting is I did get an email follow-up um, from the developer yesterday, uh, and it turns out that initially the developers had actually wanted to stage it on Fifth and not on Detroit Street. So I'm not sure exactly how in the last or so months it got changed. Um, so that was sort of a positive that the developer was thinking about us, um, although it sort of didn't feel like it or didn't seem like it um, at the time. But uh, so that was positive. Plus, the developer sent us a very cute picture of himself at the market with his family in 1967. So I will share that archival photo for folks who love old pictures of the market. So I don't know whose table it was at. It was kind of blurry, but, you know, they were there in the main aisle somewhere. And Lisa, I don't know if you want to add anything else. One question. Yeah. So uh, this was a zoning board meeting? It was the planning commission. Right. So basically, yeah. yeah. Okay. So I just want something that I was concerned about, and I really appreciate you going and talking. I wasn't able to make it. So I really yeah. appreciate you guys being able to go. Um, the one thing I was concerned about is the next at the next step, we have to be careful. We have, should someone keep going to all the meetings to make sure that this doesn't get pushed aside in the actual, sorry, my battery keeps going low, um, in our in the actual development process when they actually get to that point? Um, it's just a thought. Yeah, we can do that. Another option is I know um, the city planner is sort of transitioning the workload over to engineering. Um, so I can also be in touch with them. But yeah, they said that they would be in contact with us of their own accord. And that's actually part of their uh, approval and as far as I could tell, it's it would be a code uh, violation if they did not um, include us regularly. So that was pretty major that we were able to get the planning commission to put on as a condition of approval that that had to happen. So, I do remember yeah. them talking yeah. about going through the city and city parks, though, as yeah. part of the way that the yeah. market and the businesses and the commission would be invited. So. Um, Stephanie, we'll count on your eyes and ears to be nudging city yes. parks to say, remember, you have to keep us in the loop when it's it's um, they're staging it. Sure. Um, and, I, I, you know, I, I think it's made it through the planning commission. So I don't know what other public hearings they're going to be having about this building because I don't pay attention that much to the construction projects within the, the city. So um, I don't know if any of the other of you who've uh, seen this would 
um, Peter might have some insights too on, on what the next steps are and where will there be any more public meetings or will it all be going through the city and, and city parks as being the, the venue that helps keep all of us informed? Yeah, as far as I know, um, the next step is it just goes to like the building and engineering departments um, and then they take it from there. And then parks, of course, will have a seat at that table. And again, you know, as I said, he already emailed me, the developer did right away. Um, plus they already own the building next door to us. So, you know, it's in their very much vested interest um, to keep us informed, but we'll make sure that that happens. Great. So don't worry. Um, I, uh, that's awesome. And thanks guys for going and that they're going to include us in those discussions. Um, just wondering, so there are two specific tasks that we really had. Um, was there any response to that at all? Or is that just still on the table since we'll be talking about it in the future? Kind of where did we land with those? Yeah, so pretty much how it was left was the planning commission um, realized with the help of one of the city planners that they didn't actually have the ability to say this is where it's going to be staged. There's going to be these quiet hours. And that would be something that would have to be worked out in the planning process within the city itself. So the planning commission just did not have that ability to do that, unfortunately. But we made that case very strongly. And I think because we made that case is why we got the concession um, that we did get. So they know. They know we're not excited about losing access um, on Detroit Street side. And the planning commission really used the word collaborative, which um, I, I, I don't, you know, they didn't have the authority to do the specifics. They told us that, but um, to make sure that they had an amendment that says this all needs to be worked out together so that everybody can flourish, recognizing that there's going to be pains because it's a construction project. But, um, you know, the, the other thing that I, I realized after the meeting is that, the market has faced what it was two years of the street construction and then two years of a pandemic. And now if we have two more years of construction of a, a building for private residents across the street, that's a lot of hardship for the vendors. And so we, we really need to, to be just being a, a, a squeaky wheel. And, and I think we did make a good start on, on Tuesday for, for being that squeaky wheel. Yeah. And I should also say to you, Detroit Street Filling Station is definitely on the same boat with us and very much willing to collaborate too. So it's almost like a three, three-way collaboration, us, them, and the developer. Um, and then of course, you know, us, including the city and everyone. Um, so it, you know, it's the best case scenario for something that obviously is not the best, uh, not the most exciting development to, to say it. In, in that way um, for the market. But, um, you know, I'm glad that they listened, that they were very concerned. Multiple commissioners asked if it was something that they could do um, to make sure the staging wasn't disruptive, to make sure that we could have specific hours. And again, we might be able to still get that. Um, I feel like Saturday market uh, would be not necessarily easy, but I feel like that one is probably a safer bet that we could get, you know, quiet hours during the market. Wednesday might be a little more, little more difficult. Um, but I was also thinking since Wednesday is smaller, 
could we maybe instead, I mean, this is just a thought, I'm not saying we should necessarily do this, but we could perhaps stage on the Carytown aisle instead, so people could still get parking. You know, there's ways that we could do it on Wednesday um, to be like physically removed from that. Again, not ideal. And we'll cross the bridge when we come to it. But I think that was an idea I just sort of came to me um, yesterday for Wednesday market in the event that we can't get um, quiet hours during the week. So, so yes, best scenario from uh, a bad case situation, I guess. Anybody else have any questions or comments? And thank you for submitting letters and and um, they would said they they did say they would read them all. So thanks for raising that, Lisa. Um, I think you brought that to everyone's attention. So thank you for making us aware of that and and to those of you who were able to go to the meeting. Yeah, I actually sent out the alert about it maybe a week or so prior, um, but it was sort of a last minute thing. And the only reason I found out about it, uh, the hearing was that Detroit Street Filling Station actually gave us their notice of public hearing. Because um, we were supposed to be notified, but for some reason that never came to the market. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, I wish I would have had more notice to tell people, but you know, that's the way that those hearings work, unfortunately. Sure. Well, thank you, Stephanie. I appreciate yeah. it. And, and but Lisa definitely let, contributed a lot. Yeah, please let city parks know that you weren't notified and that that they yeah. need to help close that loop. Yes. Alrighty, great. So our next item is sign-in um, process changes and discussions. All right, here we are back again. Um, so in terms of the, the next steps for just the general sign-in process, the next steps we're going for that is distributing the draft um, to the market as a whole. Uh, unfortunately, I was not able to do that with the, the <clears throat> extra stuff on my plate with prepping for this hearing, um, as well as just all of a sudden, it's the high season of market and things ramp up pretty much automatically when May starts. Um, but that's still on my list um, for the next week or two to just get our draft out um, about that. And I thought today we could sort of focus our attentions on the other pieces um, of the sign-in process that we wanted to talk about, simply also because we've already given a lot of time to the sign-in process. And I think the next step really is we need to get um, you know, final comments from vendors and then uh, move that forward to get it <clears throat> codified and, and voted on by city council. Um, did you send, I'm sorry, I forget or I didn't see it. Did you send a draft out yet to us for commission? No, okay. I haven't sent it to anyone. I didn't miss um, it. Okay. No, you did not. No, I've just okay. been way too That's okay. immediate thing. So sorry about that. I will make a note to it ASAP. And then Stephanie, how are you going to get comments from, from people? Um, do they email them to you? Did you want them uh, written? Just we haven't said. I mean, I feel like the easiest is if we give out paper copies, people can write right on it um, and then give it back to us was sort of what I was thinking. Just keep it easy and accessible. But I, I of course, can email it to the commission. But in terms of market, that's what I was thinking. 
And then Alex would help me um, compile those and then we would submit that data to you. Um, Similar to the survey. Sorry, go ahead. No, sounds good. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> a little bit of a lag, it's hard to hear. Great. So, um, so then the other piece of that, which for some reason I made it a separate item uh, on the agenda, but it's not actually a separate item, uh, is the other pieces of the rule change, um, including um, the artisan producer status that the few comments in the beginning raised, the producer only def definitions, as well as the, the current transfer of seniority process. Um, and I know Lisa, you'd sent out the draft um, that you all had talked about when Stephanie was in my role um, about the producer only. So I don't know if you wanted to start with that, if you wanted to start with the artisan conversation or where you wanted to take it. I think I'd like to start with the producer only um, okay. list because um, right. when I looked over it, I mean, I, I remember us working hard on it uh, before COVID, which feels like a million years ago. And um, Stephanie had written up some great notes that were in red on the thing that I sent out. Um, yep. So I guess it would probably be useful for us to just identify where um, some of the, the issues that still need clarification are, um, and then we can focus the conversation on, on those sorts of things. Great. Well, I can share the screen uh, of that document if that would be helpful for folks, if you need to view it or or not either way. Do people want the screen share or uh, do you just have it from the email? I have the email still. Okay. All right. Well, I well then I won't. Okay, that sounds great. <laughs> Unless there's a demand. Um. Stephanie Stoffer, where did you see things that you thought yes. might need clarification? Great question. So there's a few vendors who fall into a gray area. Um, obviously, it makes perfect sense to keep it being producer only for farmers um, of all stripes. That makes perfect sense. I know from my conversations with the inspector and also with Stephanie and with this draft, um, I know one of the points of contentions within that category of producer um, is people that sell uh, plants. And what does it mean to have it be grown by you? For example, if you're buying a plug of a plant that does not grow in Michigan or something that you bought from someone else, how many weeks do you have to have it grown in your greenhouse or at your facility um, to have that count as, say, producer only? I know that's sort of one of the strange gray areas. Um, again, you know, is there a litmus test to say, you know, you, you used X many days of labor, X many days of electricity, um, that that counts as being grown by you. Cause again, you know, we do want to make it so that people can have items that are hard to start here, but that they might not have the facilities to start those items. Um, but we also want to make sure that they're not people just shipping stuff in from out of state um, and then just bringing it right to the table the next day. I know that was one um, piece that we had questions about. Um, another one was that there are some vendors 
who are value-added producers that are in somewhat of a gray area as well. Like for example, Stamatopoulos olive oil, um, although the olives are grown in Greece at the vendor's family's operation, you know, they've had a lot of questions about, well, you know, is it just the olives? Is it just, do we have to stuff the olives? Can we just re-bottle the olive oil? You know, like where is the dividing line um, for that? Plus, you know, should we have exceptions for products that we can't get in Michigan, right? Like tea, for example, not to Zane, but specifically green leaf teas. Um, does that have to be something that was blended? Because I think this gets into a really confusing area of someone who's making a baked good. They're not necessarily using Michigan grown flour. They're not necessarily using Michigan grown sugar. Um, but yet they're considered a producer. How is that different than somebody that is actually taking a green tea that they did not grow um, and putting it together with like a local flower or something? Um, you know, really, where is the difference there? Um, and the reason I've been thinking about this in particular is <clears throat> there are already vendors that already existed before I came on um, that are in this sort of weird gray area. Like, are they a reseller? Are they not? I mean, you know, Strodex is a case in point, right? You know, like, yes, they work for Strodex, but their business name is slightly different, right? There's all these idiosyncrasies and I'm not trying to call people out um, on this forum. I'm just trying to give the example of how it may seem on the surface that producer only is a simple thing, um, but it gets very, very complicated when we're talking about um, producers that are not farmers, um, but are food producers. And the other issue that this ties into is the issue of equity. Um, because let's be honest, you know, to have a farm or a food business that has enough volume to sell at the market, you need to have the money to rent a commercial kitchen. You need to probably own your land. You need to have all these things that historically underserved farmers and historically underserved business owners um, are shut out of. So is there a way that we can address that while also having the integrity of a producer only situation? Right. So, for example, um, we have had somebody and this is not someone that we accepted, but just an example of someone that applied, whereas they have like a bunch of body care products. Um, that they import from Lebanon and then they add local products into it and make another thing. Um, but the base product is imported from another country and it's imported from a place, um, you know, that they didn't produce it personally. It's not their family member. It's not their friend, but you know, that would be a business that is supporting a woman, a woman of color who comes from a religious minority. Um, so you see what I'm saying? So there's a lot of issues on the table. I think that I'm, been thinking about. Um, but some of them, some of it's because of that, but some of it's also um, the uniqueness of certain products. Um, lastly, I will give another example. Um, there is a fish seller at market now. Um, part of the reason they are with us is that we lost Bayport Fish Company. Um, Bayport, due partly to the pandemic, due partly to other things, it didn't make sense for them to continue at the market. Um, pretty much they're not doing any farmer's markets now. Like you can still get their stuff at Argus um, and at the Sealy farm stand. But, and part of the reason for that is that the DNR um, has changed a lot of the fishing regulations. 
So it's not possible for small fisheries really to have the volume that we would need. So what does that mean? Um, the new fish person, they are basically a contractor with a very well-established fishery up in the UP, Massey. They've been around for over 60 years. Um, but we felt like we needed to have local lake fish represented. Yes, he's not personally the fisherman, but it only comes from this one producer. And he is the only broker at our market of it. But I, again, some people might have thought that that was unpopular, but you know, that was a decision I felt like we had to make simply because the DNR changed the regulation and it made it impossible that there would never be another bait port, right? It would either be this solution or no fish. Um, so, you know what I'm saying? And I feel like, again, yes, we can do it on a case-by-case basis, but if we don't have clear rules that gives no roadmap um, to future managers, that makes it difficult for me when I have to explain in detail you know, why there's this one unconforming person that, you know, has a very popular product, is still local to Michigan, and is still benefiting directly a fishery, but he's not the fisherman. You know what I'm saying? So, so yes, there's a lot there, um, but those are a few thoughts. And I know that the inspector, um, this would also be helpful to her to have clear guidance because the way that it's currently written in the rules is that if someone is found to have not produced whatever the item is, they're automatically kicked out of market. So this is very important for us to both keep the integrity of having something as positive as producer only, especially for agriculture, but also at the same time, not unintentionally excluding people, um, especially people that are historically underserved um, because we are too strict uh, in our interpretation of what this means. If that answers your question, Lisa, I know that's probably more than you anticipated, but. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, I think it's good to, to focus yeah. on the highlights. You know, we talked about honey before. It sounds like that's yeah. not as much as an issue. It's not any longer, no. They sort yeah. of that, that particular vendor. So I'd like to propose and get feedback from uh, the commissioners um, that we think about um, maybe the, the, the producer part of thing, the plants and the fish, and then do the value added as, as something separate, because that seems like that's adding a whole nother complexity um, to things. Um, and we are running short on, on time. Yeah. Sure. So um, feedback, if, if that's okay. And then, then sure. also uh, artisans should be <laughs> yet yes. another, another thing too. Yep. And I feel like I just will say the sidebar, the artisans is actually relatively easy. I feel like that one could easily stay as producer only, no problem. Okay. As could most farms. I mean, it's just sort of the special case producers. Um, sorry, just one more example that could help. So Vestigard Farms, they're a meat farm. They're new to the market, but they also partner with Beer Camp, which is a local restaurant and um, sausage maker. So at when they first came, I said, you know, hey, you can't sell those things that are made with your meat at the other place. But how is that really different from them sending it to a USDA facility who is then making sausage? already. So just another uh, food for thought. Sorry, food pun. Um, yes, there's 
lots of issues to untangle. And this is partly why I think we started this um, process because it did give a little more guidance to the manager. Um, so I'm yep. really glad we're visiting it again. Um, just a couple of thoughts because it, it, you know, there's a lot packed in there. Um, I think it was helpful, Stephanie, to have you kind of identify, I guess, maybe some of the larger questions or themes that you're seeing um, in terms of like the big questions that maybe we want answered first, like the, the fish question or something. And maybe um, if that's something you would like feedback on from the commission to put into this, um, you could write a short list and we could tackle some of those. I don't know the best mm -hmm. way to do it, but um, I well, also- one, um, I think, you know, that was really the only option. So again, that's a decision that I made. Um, yeah. And again, like, I don't think we're gonna get other people. That's the other reason. There was literally like this person right. or no other option, so. Right, um, but it's still, I think it still brings the question of like, like that you brought up before, you know, if we cannot have this product any other way at the market, is there a way, do we make an exception? Is there a way for us? Do we want to um, allow this other way to bring it into the market? You know, or do we just say we're producer only, so we're just not going to have it in the future? Um, and then I think that also the other question that I think about a lot brings up is what about what we currently have versus where we're going forward. And so if we are to make any um, changes, how does this affect current vendors? And then do we grandfather in certain things if, if, it's, if it's different from what we currently have or do we wanna ask for changes of our current vendors too? You know what I mean? So I think that's a big question. Um, and then finally, like, I'm glad Jan's going to be part of the discussion, but I think that it ties in very closely to our inspection process and how are we, um, what are we looking for when you inspect vendors? How do we know that there's no reselling versus yeah. um, that? And I don't know if you want to get into the process of inspection or want the permission to get into it, but I do think that they go very closely hand in hand. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, this is sort of related, but also not. We're looking to add an additional inspector that might also be the assistant manager, um, partly because Jan has moved um, pretty far away from Ann Arbor, but partly to just to share uh, the burden, because I know when she started, there was multiple inspectors. Um, and now we've just been down to one for the last, what, five years, something like this, um, since Michelle uh, passed away. Um, so, so that's, yeah, I definitely hear that. And I think it is probably relevant to this whole question and I'm fine with having that conversation too. So it seems like one of the key issues here is the definition of reselling since that's what we want to avoid. Sure. Um, so, um, again, we're running short on time, but if, if Stephanie, okay, if you no. could put, put things in, 
uh, think about putting things in writing. And, you know, one of the things that I have been hearing is that we don't want somebody like bringing oranges in from Florida and then reselling them at the market. So uh, one of the things I guess I'd like to think about is um, with, with a fish, does that really fall under reselling? Um, if, if it's sort of like somebody selling for the company there. And I do see parallels with the Vestigard case with him bringing in and, and selling from another company. Um, uh, so, you know, thinking about those things maybe in parallel and um, with the fish, one of the strong points for me is it's, it's still from Michigan. Um, and, and that is important if we're thinking about the farmer's market being a vital part of promoting local food, however we define local food, um, which we don't need to get into that, but it is, it is something, well, I mean, maybe we do need to do something, not tonight, not tonight. Yeah. And not tonight, definitely not tonight, but, um, but, but thinking about uh, if, if producer only is to avoid the, the sort of reselling, um, maybe we can, can think about that um, as part of. Yeah. And I do want to be careful too about, you know, thinking about what precedents are we setting if, for example, like we're allowing the fish to come in and they're getting it from someone else who is um, their provider, then how could that affect other products that might be coming into the market that might be closer to something that we're trying to avoid? Mm-hmm. Sure. And again, no one's suggesting we should have oranges. No one's suggesting we should have early season watermelons coming from Georgia. I mean, this was just a really specific instance. Um, but again, I think it's relatively easy to have a producer only for farm. The only, as I said, the only way, place it gets weird is if this fish case, which is very, very specialized situation due to a change in the DNR fishing regulations that don't allow people to fish as deep, don't let people fish as many months out of the year. Um, Whereas the Vestigard thing, that's their meat. They raised it. They just had a different person process it beyond, it wasn't the USDA facility. So, you know what I'm saying? Like, what's the real difference in that particular case? But again, I told him, um, you know, hey, that's not, really yours, but maybe I was wrong about that. Maybe I was too rigid um, with that interpretation of producer only. And and I think it does parallel with, like you said, when a meat producer brings their animals to a U.S. meat facility and they make sausage for you or something. Mm-hmm. I think when I, uh, one, another way to maybe think about it is like what percentage of time or management does the producer have into the product already um yeah so like have they created most like growing it or raising it most of the product and then it's finished off by another person uh, by another vendor i think is is another way to think about that question um yeah, it's tricky. Sure. 
And to just be clear, the fish person has said, oh, well, if I could get smelt from this place, and I'm like, no, no, no. It has to be specifically just from the one UP fish producer. It doesn't matter. So that's the other thing, too. And the the model for that really was from Shoreday. Because in all, for all intents and purposes, they are contractors, although they're on the border between employee and contractor. Um, again, yeah, we're and not I think when we had talked with Shodex about it originally too, there was, we had, that's why there was parts also in this producer only definitions that we created before about yeah. being an employee specifically as opposed to a yes. contractor to avoid that buying and then reselling. And so like having it have to be an employee with the same name represented at the farmer's market as the, like whoever produced it or made it. Um, so you're representing the original company that made it and not like a separate business that made it. Um, again, uh, again, like these are also questions about like, how do we treat it going forward versus even what do we have now? And I think it is important to like make, make it what we want it to be going forward is more important. If that makes sense. Exactly. And I think in this particular case, it's a situation where, you know, it's not something I'm looking to do every single time, right? It was a very specific thing. Um, so we need to have our language be like as inclusive as, as inclusive as possible, but also not restrictive. And I was going to say too, the one problem that I see with the distinction between employee and contractor, given the nature of the gig economy, many more businesses are sort of abandoning the traditional employee structure in favor of contractor. Um, even if, you know, it's not exactly like that, but um, so that's another thing to keep in mind that they may be just working for that person and working directly, but they might actually be a contractor um, officially. So that's another thing where that might get a little uh, hairy as well. But I understand. I mean, that makes sense. It's just, are we making it, we think we're making it clear, but is it also opening up another um, gray area at the same time? Right. So then I guess, you know, the way to thinking about how do we get at what we want? Like, yeah, yeah like how do we get at what we want? And then we develop the language around it. So like, I think we need to first kind of define, all right, in these situations, like what is it at the heart of what we want? and then work forward from there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I but, think that is true. But again, yeah, maybe um, for another meeting, or maybe this is something that we want a subcommittee on. Like, you know, but, yeah. um, you know, maybe Stephanie writing out some of the more common themes or questions that you see that could apply to a couple different vendors and tackling those would be good. So, I, excuse me, I feel like all this is pretty important that we're talking about, like pretty crucial to the, to the makeup of the market and the future of the market. And I think that maybe the best thing I think was mentioned already would be to get a list of all these things that we're looking at changing or are in question or what we're looking for an answer for. And then we're going to have to look at the list and go through them one by one and kind of, you know, 
go over it that way, I feel, because that's a lot of different topics have been touched. And I feel like if they were on a, written, written down and we went through one at a time, I think it'd be easier. Um, that's my opinion. Yep. And I think we can use the the thing that, we, that was already being worked on as a template for that, because it is already sort of um, like that, where it's like, there's the honey section, there's the cheese section, there's the produce and cut flower section. Um, so yeah, I definitely hear that. Also, I just wanted to add that when I first started on the commission here, that was when we decided about the, uh, about the flowers and how long we had to have them and stuff. And I, I know we spent a lot of time on that. I'm yeah. sure I think Lisa was here. Um, and we, you know, and I, so I don't know if we're necessarily trying to change that or I don't know if that's one of them or not, but I know that that was just looked out, looked at, I don't know, three, four years ago. Yeah, we're not trying to change anything. We're just trying to expand on the conversation that already started then. So if that was something that was already pretty clear and people are okay with, like, we'll keep that. We're just wondering if there's other places we can clarify um, and reduce confusion for myself, all staff, and the inspectors, too. and vendors. Yes, reduce confusion for everyone. Because you're right, the plant thing is important. Um, but, you know, I think, as I said, the easiest thing to do with the exception of these categories, like certain meat producers, like certain fish producers, I think we can blanketly say no reselling of fruits, vegetables, or flowers. I think that's pretty obvious. Um, and we can keep with that. That's not going any place, but the only questions for meat become who's processing the meat. The questions become like, what, what's up with this contractor versus employee thing for the fish? Um, and what's going on with the plants again, that it's probably already been in there, but it hasn't been updated in the official rules. Um, so that's some language that we need to finally put in there, even if it had been um, discussed and decided before. So that would be my summary of that. And these were also like, originally, I don't know if we were going to actually add them to the rules. We were, this was sort of like a guideline for the managers. So I think that's another thing okay. that you need to decide if, if you want to sure. just keep it as guidelines for you and a policy, or if you want it like officially adopted into the, the market rules. I mean, I would love to see it in the rules just because we get so many questions, especially for prospective vendors. Um, you know, I would really like to say, you know, this is what producer only means. So it doesn't seem like it's a case by case basis. So it doesn't seem like there's some sort of weird favoritism going on for certain types of products. Um, so that's what I feel, but maybe that's not right for the future. I'm not sure. And Stephanie had to step away for a second. She's back. Sorry, I could still hear you. Okay, good, good. <laughs> so Stephanie, I think for the next meeting, if you could take this document and highlight other areas that you think uh, might need clarification, um, that 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 would be helpful, and then we can. Um, identify, I'd like to think about whether in the next meeting we should also think about having just a special committee to, to hash out then some of the, the details on this. And I can look into what we have to do to, to have a, a special meeting. Um, I think you just need to vote on the formation of a committee and then you can just schedule it at will. I don't okay. think there's any special process. 
um, rest of the commissioners, do we want to do that tonight for a special meeting? Do we want to put it off knowing that um, the next couple months may be a little more challenging for <laughs> us with travel plans and other things to, to um, potentially get to quorum with the, the, these meetings? Yeah, and speaking of quorum, I, Stephanie, did you mention at the start of the meeting that uh, this I is- was, I was going to do it in the new business. But oh, okay. This is, my last, this is my last meeting with the commission. Um, I've, I've been with the commission now for five years, I think, and um, just have a lot of demands on my time. And as we, I know we all do, but- um, so I think it's time for us to find another neighborhood representative, which I'm happy to try to also help with. Um, so I know that makes quorum even more challenging, Lisa, to your point. And um, so just wanted to mention that, that, that that's probably um, another obstacle to navigate as we're trying, as you all are trying to, to think about the producer only guidelines. Yeah, Holly, and thank you. We're, we're going to miss you. Um, Thank you. Yes, and and any any nudging of of people to to um, apply for the commission, I think, would be and everybody as as thinking about neighbors. Um, I, I know a lot of people don't realize how they should actually get on the commission or that they can apply. So I think all of us encouraging um, and you, Holly, in particular. Yeah. Um, it's it's been really um, wonderful to have somebody who's thinking about the food system broadly on the, the commission. So. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. I'll do my best to um, do some some recruiting, some nudging. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that would be great. Thanks so much. Thank so, you all. Yeah, Stephanie and, and Jeff, I don't know how you're feeling about um, having a special committee. And Stephanie, I know you're going to have constraints on your time in the next couple months, too. Um, yeah, I probably will be pretty busy in the next couple months. Um, so, yeah, maybe your suggestion for doing, figuring that out later okay. would be good. Okay, okay great. All right. So, uh, Stephanie Stoffer, if you could go through the, the document, sort of highlight um, some issues that you really think. And as I remember this document before, you can sort of see the patterning that we had kind of zeroed in on this responsibility of, of sort of caring, raising, uh, thinking about the plants, if that needs clarification, sort of roughly 50% of the plant's life. Um, is, is useful. I know the perennials get really messy this way, but, uh, but if we can make that as a recommendation, you could also see that there was a checklist too. And, and although they weren't required, there were things that were recommended as part of that checklist. And I think thinking about that format, um, it, it seemed to be helpful before, but thinking about that potentially again, um, as a, as a format to, to, um, deal with some of the stickier issues this time might be useful. Yes, that should not be a problem. So I think, you know, we're at 704, so I'm not sure if you want to formally table um, 
the last two items, which were the artisan producer status, even though we had some great um, public comments so far about it, uh, as well as the transfer of seniority to the next meeting. Yeah, I think definitely the artisan uh, status, uh, if you could share those letters with us and um, yep, already sent. also I would uh, love feedback from you about how much uh, granting the artisans a second stall, um, how that would affect the kind of makeup of the market um, that 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 would be. Uh, it would have, it, I agree with them. It wouldn't have any impact. Okay. I mean, as, as they said, they already have two stalls. And with the exception of Anne, all the other ones, there's like an empty stall next to them and they do pay annually for two. So. Okay. But again, that's the easy part. The hard part is, should we keep having multiple tiers? Do we need to have sort of like a second class citizenship at market or does it create toxic culture? You know, I think that's really the underlying question. And that's not just about artisans versus producers. That's also, you know, a larger question in indeed in terms of seniority. So, yes, more time is needed to discuss. Yeah. yeah. And then the transfer of seniority. Do you have any immediate needs on that? Um, because I, I would like to think that we could table it if there aren't any immediate needs. Not right now. There's one particular vendor that's sort of in this weird COVID-induced limbo, um, but we can always uh, address that later. Okay, great. All right, so let's table those, um, and then we can move on right. to any new business, which which we've already talked about. Holly stepping down from the commission. Yep. Is there anything else? Not on new business that I have. That was the only thing that I had. And then we're to the second public comment. Yes, so there is a hand raised. All right. Okay, so you may you may speak once you unmute yourself. And I am asking you to unmute, I'm clicking the button. I don't know if it's sluggish. Sorry, one second. It's should be working. Can you unmute participant? I it just oh, told go. me I'm unmuted. Can you hear me? Oh, now you are. Now I do. Sorry. I think it has a little lag. It has it a little lag. It took like four times before it even went through. So. <laughs> okay, this is Ann Shepard, but I'm going to read a very brief statement from Debbie Marks that she dictated to me earlier. Is that the um, same? Is that the same letter that I read before? Or is that a different one? Nope, it's a different okay. one. Perfect. Okay, it's very brief. Um, this is Debbie Marks. As a top seniority annual artist, myself and a few others are asking for two permanent stalls, not one permanent stall and one, I hope like heck I get it each day stall. We are not asking for any more stalls uh, than we already take. When the stalls are assigned each year, we want to be able to choose two annual stalls next to each other, just like every other vendor at the Ann Arbor Farmers Market. Thank you, Debbie Marks. And that's the whole thing. Right. She just wanted to make sure that it was clear what she was asking for because she, yep. Great. you know. Yes. Thank you so much, everybody. And um, thank you, Holly. I'll always remember that you were on the commission when I got my seniority. Thank you. <laughs> all right. Thanks, thanks yeah. you guys. And all of you, all of you. Thank you. All right. Bye. All right.
Is there anyone else? That would like to participate in the public comment. I am not seeing any hands raised, but maybe we'll give it a moment just in case. Because there is a slight lag. Um, but I am not seeing anyone still. All right, then we are at adjournment. And so I will, we won't vote on this. We'll just adjourn. And um, it is right. 708 and the meeting is adjourned. Holly, all thanks time. again for all your service and uh, hope to see you around the market sometime. Yeah, for sure. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you at the market. Thanks, Holly.